Hello, I'm Rob Shank. You're listening to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this very brave, brilliant, young German church leader. Uh, during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism in the days preceding World War II and then throughout that epic global conflict, uh, Bonhoeffer is known as a number of things. Most people know him as a martyr. We know him as one of the greatest ethicists of the last century or longer. So we invite you to learn more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the sponsor of this broadcast. Uh, well, I call it a broadcast. It's a podcast, but it sounds more important as a broadcast. Uh, and you can do that by checking out our website at www.tdbi for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, tdbi.org. We're always looking for more friends of our posthumous friend and mentor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject that it seems none of us can stay too far away from, and that is the pandemic, COVID-19, and its continuation in the world. If you're listening to this podcast in the distant future, you'll look back on it and read it in the pages of history because it is an historic event, and we're living through it now, and I'm going to talk with somebody who's had a very up-close and personal encounter with it. Uh, and uh, I think you'll find the conversation fascinating. Uh, I'll put it in context. The nexus of this with Bonhoeffer, which is something we always look for, uh, is the fact that there are some very serious moral, ethical, and even theological implications to a pandemic and how each of us respond to it. And that's how we treat it here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Uh, you'll see that we have articles on that, uh, examining it even from a biblical and theological perspective. So I hope uh, you'll, you'll join uh, in listening in and then maybe sharing this with others you think could benefit from this conversation. With me today, as my conversation partner, is Chrissy Odin. She is a registered nurse working in cardiovascular procedural areas. Uh, for the first nine months of her nursing career, she worked in the ICU setting, caring for critically ill patients at an inner city trauma center, including those with COVID-19. She often fought an uphill battle to prolong life for these patients as their body systems shut down, titrating IV medications, monitoring their oxygenation status and ventilator, repositioning patients to decrease pressure injuries caused from being bedbound or proning COVID patients, and closely assessing them for minor changes pointing to new medical issues. She also spent time rounding with physicians, updating the patient's family, setting up Zoom meetings due to visitor limitations for COVID patients, and hours cumulatively putting on and taking off PPE. 
Chrissy now lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, J.M., and their rescue dog, Winston. Uh, Chrissy, thank you for joining me in conversation today. I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, I have a nephew dog named Winston, so we have (laughs) that much in common, but we have a lot more than that. We actually worship together in the same congregational family, and that's where I first heard your testimony, your experience, and we're going to be publishing that. So podcast family listeners, uh, watch for that article to come out uh, with Chrissy's own words about her experience. Um, But before we get into the intricacies of your COVID and COVID patient encounters, I like our our podcast family to get to know my conversation partners a little better. So if you wouldn't mind, would you tell us a little bit about your own background, your family, your upbringing, as much or as little of your bio as you care to share? (laughs) Sure, absolutely. Well, it's a privilege to be able to sit down and chat with you this afternoon. Um, Yeah, so the the quick version i guess is uh i am someone who grew up in a very rural location in maryland um i'm the youngest of three and uh yeah grew up in a christian home Uh, my mom was actually a nurse as well Uh, she she did very different type of nursing she was a maternity nurse um and my dad was an engineer so I grew up in a Christian family um, in the sort of very evangelical time frame of the 80s and 90s, uh, but really enjoyed always going to church. And that was where a lot of my social outlet was. And from a young age, I had a really strong interest in other cultures and places. And in high school, I was able to actually start experiencing them um, in a more meaningful way, Um, went on a variety of your kind of typical youth group mission trips. Um, But uh, those experiences really grew my vision for what living life as a Christian uh, sort of on the fringes of things could look like. And also, began to recognize that I personally experience God very deeply um, when I'm with people who are from another culture or um, are just different than me in some way. Um, So I went to college in New York, uh, graduated with a degree in intercultural studies, and then uh, promptly moved to Western Uganda. I lived there for about two and a half years and worked in pediatric public health, nutrition, um, and found it to be an incredibly challenging and yet rewarding experience. Uh, And then I moved to Philadelphia um, where I met my husband, JM, uh, worked in an office setting for a while, and then ultimately decided to pursue nursing as a second career. Um, I was ready to get out from behind the desk and back into a a work setting where I could really be with people uh, face-to-face and provide care for them in a a more hands-on kind of way. Um, 
And that eventually led us down here to DC. So it was your career that brought you to the greater Washington, DC area. In, indeed it did, yes. Interesting. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm trying to get a little bit of the timing here. Were you studying nursing during the pandemic? Yeah. So I graduated in December of 2020. So I graduated into the pandemic already well underway um, and finished out my last semester and some change during the early days of the pandemic. So yeah, I remember um, being in the hospital uh, for one of my clinical rotations and everything was kind of there was, a, there was a hum of activity around this coronavirus thing. Um, and pretty quickly, we were uh, ushered out of the hospital <laughs> because there wasn't enough PPE to go around. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and as a medical professional, as a trained person, when you were hearing that buzz and the reports and, and all of that coming in, how did it affect you personally and professionally? What, what, what were your thoughts in those initial days of COVID's appearance? Mm, sure. Yeah, I, I will say as someone who's lived overseas in a space where there had been an Ebola pandemic once before, I, I was fairly familiar with um, being in spaces that felt medically not ideal. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it didn't necessarily set off a ton of alarm bells for me right away. Um, I am quick to admit, I thought this seems like something that maybe we're blowing out of proportion. Um, you know, this is the US, we have a great healthcare system that can handle, you know, the occasional, um, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? We have a great system that can handle a, a one-off situation like- I have uh, a word for you. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's, let's try exigency. How does that sound? Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> it sounds extreme. like an exigency to me. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But how interesting. I never thought of that, that, you know, you you had seen in a situation where there was a, a, a pandemic and, and a very disconcerting one. I mean, Ebola sure. even seems more frightening uh, than than COVID to me, at least. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you're comparing it here and saying, well, we we have a far better uh, system. So you were thinking at that point, we can probably absorb this. We, we can manage it. Absolutely. Uh, that was my uh, that was my original thought for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. how, how times change your thoughts. <laughs> well, and and I think you can probably predict that's exactly where I want to go here. But before I do, I will I will pause a minute and and just ask you to kind of revisit for a minute because i, I sort of want to explore that next mm -hmm. sta step or stage um of your experience within a a context so 
I think I know the answer to this, but I'm, I, I don't want to, I don't want to impose an answer on you, but it, it, it sounds like you see your medical profession as more than a job mm. that maybe it's a calling. W would you describe it that way? Yeah, I, I do consider it to be perhaps a, a developing calling. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. As someone who spent the first part of her career in Christian missions, um, I tend to be a little reticent to throw the word calling around because it mm. can carry so much um, weight and expectation um, when it's used. And yet I, I do absolutely feel that um, you know, I chose this profession for a reason, and there is a certain degree of driving force internally that's required for people to say yes to a healthcare profession. Um, it's it's a pretty thankless job, um, and you're interacting with folks on their worst days, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and so it, it can be very quickly um, a space where folks burn out. Um, but I absolutely chose it because I experience God in a really unique way when I'm sitting with others in their vulnerable spaces. Um, and, mm. and it adds a richness to life and my own faith for sure. Well, by now I should have a little bell on my desk that I ring every time we have a nexus with our namesake Bonhoeffer. And I want to kind of go ding, 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 this little Bonhoefferianism there, your reticence to too easily call this a calling <laughs> and to weigh that in the balance and approach, approach it so cautiously. Ding ding, we, we got a nexus with Bunhofer there. So that and that's always the best compliment we can pay to anybody. So thank you for being so wow. Bunhofferian in that moment. Um, Fantastic. <laughs> so now, uh, here you are uh, in the hospital setting, and your initial response is, "We can handle this," but something changes. How does it change? Oh, now you're asking me to go deeply back into my memory of mm. <laughs> the early days. Yeah, I think um, I, I, there was, a, it wasn't a particular switch flipping, but uh, slowly the accumulation of, of realizing that uh, this was a highly contagious disease, that it was likely here in the U.S. long before we recognized that it was present. Um, and, and slowly putting those pieces together of my own background and studying public health and infectious disease, seeing um, that, yeah, we live in a global society and it was well out of the gate before anyone was fully aware. Um, and seeing those case numbers ticking up uh, and the, the scenes from ICUs on the news, uh, you know, pretty, 
pretty quickly my tune changed. Um, and I think all of us can remember um, thinking, oh, this will be a few weeks. You know, there's it's like a long snow day break. <laughs> Let's just mm -hmm. get lots of supplies and hunker down. Um, and yet those incremental small small spaces of seeing this is this is something bigger than we first thought um, and people are sick and dying in these huge numbers um, it, it, the gravity that it took on was fairly expedient <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah. yeah it's very sobering to hear you say that and uh, you know i'm trying to picture you in the hallway of an icu i've made you know chaplain calls pastoral calls to mm. icus and i know what they're like often with the sliding glass doors and you know the hustle bustle going on all around as people are being tended to who are in you know grave situations and need mm -hmm. constant monitoring and then to think this thing is superimposed on top of that already um you know uh high tension environments but mm. uh, uh, you know just as you reflect on that it, I, I feel it all the more that this wasn't even your ordinary ICU stress. That mm -hmm. it was, would you say, far greater than than the normal kind of low hum of you know attenuation inside an ICU ward. Is was it exponentially more or a little more? Yeah, to be completely honest. Um at the very beginning stages, I was fairly shielded because I was still in nursing school. And then when I took my job in the ICU, COVID was a well-known enemy at that point. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. But I can say in my experience um, of, of being in a hospital setting as a nursing student, um, yeah, there was a, there were some palpable shifts uh, in every space in the hospital um, where folks began to recognize not only uh, are are we going to need to care for these patients that uh, are are surging towards our doors, um, but we are as healthcare workers still want to go home at the end of the night and. What are we bringing back to our families? Um, how, how do we go about caring, not only for our patients but for the people we live with too? Yeah, I wondered about that. <laughs> and you know, first, I want to be very sensitive here, um, Chrissy. I've asked you for a lot to to recount this and, in a way, relive it. Uh, for us. So I want to be sensitive to that. And at any time, you know, that you want to say, 
I'd really rather not reflect on that. Please feel free to do so. You're not obligated to answer any <laughs> question. You're not sure. under oath. I'm not a prosecutor. This isn't a courtroom. <laughs> so I want to be really sensitive to that. Um, but I, I do want to ask you about that personal concern. You know, generally speaking, I think the medical professionals I know and this, you know, pre-COVID, um, you know, generally could go home at night feeling, you know, normal, mm -hmm. uh, not having any more worry than maybe the average person, unless maybe you treated somebody with the flu and you wondered, you know, I don't get that. But this seems like a greater weight. When you came home, would you classify it as any level of anxiety? Did you have anxiety? I'm going to get this. I'm going to communicate it to the people I love. How much of a burden was it? I think life pre-vaccine and post-vaccine are, are perhaps two different things um, mm. in some ways. Uh, that being said, uh, absolutely. Um, there's a certain degree of being able to leave your work at work that was very much not the case anymore. Hmm. Um, I'm really thankful that I didn't need to worry about, you know, I don't have children, so I wasn't mm -hmm. worried about their well-being. Um, I did know that it seemed based on the knowledge I had at the time that myself and JM were both very low risk individuals, mm. um, that if we were to get it, um, we would likely be okay. Um, mm. But uh, there were uh, times that I thought about even just the logistics of if one of us were to turn up positive how we'd go about life. We lived at the time in a small one bedroom apartment. Mm, <laughs> and mm. so, uh, you know, quarantining from each other was going to be nearly impossible. Um, so we uh, took as many precautions as we could, but also recognizing that um, my need to be out in the community uh, was going to come with a certain amount of risk. Um, and at this time, I will say my mom um, was going through cancer treatment uh, and was oh. severely immunocompromised. So that certainly affected my decisions about visiting with extended family. Mm. Um, and it was it was hard to to not be able to physically be present with family um during that time yeah i i feel a need to to say uh, you know my curiosity here on behalf of our our podcast family is not simply ghoulish like i'm not just asking you you know uh to titillate us um mm. I'm asking because I think there are very serious ethical implications here for all of us. Because while 
a whole lot of folks I've talked to throughout this pandemic, including pastor friends, colleagues of mine in ministry who have said, ah, if I get it, I get it. Even if I die, I die. Uh, what's the big deal? I mean, we got the flu out there. We got other diseases. You know, what's the big deal here? And the way I've, I've wrestled with that and treated it and even written about it is that there, there are, with COVID in a nearly unique way, there are some diseases that, you know, you're the professional here, I'm the amateur, but <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly aware there are some diseases that are highly communicable and that are dangerous, but this on a scale rarely mm. seen. And so there's far more than ourselves implicated here. Mm -hmm. And it's not just my spouse who might be okay, you know, uh, with it too. They, they, you know, I know, I know husband, wife, spouse, uh, even, you know, uh, other family members, units that say to each other, I don't care. You can give it to me. I'll, I'll risk it. You know, we're not going to do all that other nonsense and we're going to see each other and we're going to have our parties and our get togethers and all of that. But, it's even bigger than them. Even mm -hmm. if you have a family of four, six, eight, 12, 20, there's you and your colleagues in the ICU, and there's your loved ones who suddenly are strapped with burdens and concerns and disruptions, and possibly worse. So this, this is where we start... Uh, placing this in a very serious moral and ethical context. So that, that's the reason that I'm asking you these things. And I, I hope, I hope uh, they're not terribly intrusive or even re-traumatizing for you. And I want to- No, not at all. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. So let me, let me, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go to that question of, other people's reactions to this disease. But first, um, maybe I'll just ask you for maybe a few little uh, anecdotes about your own encounters with COVID patients. Can you do that and still stay within HIPAA <laughs> sure. uh, boundaries? Absolutely. I think that's very possible. <laughs> oh, good. Um, yeah, in my experience, uh, COVID patients uh, are a lot of work. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. one very um, blunt way that we as ICU nurses uh, identify <laughs> with each other. Um, you know, it it's not just that they're all ICU patients are a lot of work, granted. Um, there's so many pieces of technology and um, body systems and lab results and medications and just uh, the body is so intricate and there's so many things usually going wrong that can land someone in the ICU. Um, so we as ICU nurses, uh, are the coordinators of all of that chaos, uh, trying to 
provide care to the patient, uh, inform families of what's going on when um, often it's many things are going on, um, and then also coordinating care with particular specialists, physicians, and other members of the team. Uh, so that's just a typical ICU patient. Um, when you add COVID in, uh, it, it becomes that much more complex. Uh, the amount of PPE required. Um, anytime I went into a COVID patient's room, I had to put on a plastic gown, um, an N95 mask, uh, eyewear, and make sure I had a scrub hat on um, so that I wasn't um, potentially, you know, infecting others as I came out of the room. Um, and that takes time. But these are critically ill patients where if one tiny thing goes wrong with a piece of equipment or a medication, they are teetering on the brink. Um, so it's a lot of putting stuff on, taking stuff off, running into the room, um, micro decisions about how quickly can I get in there and get things done. Um, I don't want to spend more time in the room than necessary for exposure reasons, um, but also making sure I'm providing the best possible care to this person. Um, I, I will say, um, you know, we had a very strict no visitors policy, so that adds additional um, workload <laughs> to the to the healthcare team in terms of communicating with anxious family members and loved ones who can't see what is happening and how their loved one is being cared for. Um, so there's a lot of time spent on the phone, uh, setting up Zooms so that they can physically see their loved one. Um, and to be honest, uh, COVID patients get really sick really fast. Um, they move through the stages often um, kind of from entry into the hospital with shortness of breath or low oxygenation, uh, they can move from that to being on a ventilator, teetering at the edge of survival within a matter of hours. <laughs> so um, as the nurse at the bedside, it's really imperative that we notice the tiniest changes in these folks and get ahead of them as much as we can. Um, and, and yet also recognizing that often we're fighting an uphill battle um, and technology and medicine have come so far and are so incredible. Uh, and yet we're not <laughs> able to um, save everybody. Uh, we're not God, even though uh, sometimes I think we like to think that American healthcare is completely devoid of death. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I've had seven uh, colleagues, one spouse of a colleague, but six colleagues and a spouse uh, in my immediate circle, some of whom I knew for decades and worked alongside who have died of this disease, died 
in mm. ICU wards. And in the cases where descriptions were given to me of their deaths, it was really terrible, really mm. terrible. Like, you know, I guess n nobody really thinks of a kind of a good way to die, except maybe when you're 97 and you go to sleep and you don't wake up, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But the descriptions given to me of my friends and colleagues' deaths mm. were so terrible that I often replay them very anxiously in my mind. And these were not people who were blood relatives. Thank God I haven't had any family members succumb to this disease. But you must have experienced death mm. of your patients. Can you tell us, just reflect a little bit on what that's like uh, in treating a, a COVID patient and watching them succumb? Yeah. Um, the ICU is, is a space where death is certainly more common than many other hospital settings. Um, and I knew that going into it. Um, I do believe that a person who's dying from COVID, um, it feels that much more um, painful because their loved ones can't be there to hold their hand. Um, and the weight, the emotional weight of that is uh, certainly held by their family and blood relatives, but there's a degree in which the nurse at the bedside holding their hand is also carrying that weight. Um, and yeah, it, it is not a, like you said, there's no pretty way to go. Um, but for those who are dying in an ICU setting, um, nothing about it feels natural to me. Um, there's uh, tubes and IV lines and things just kind of coming out from everywhere. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. The individuals um, are certainly, you know, made as comfortable as possible. Um, and yet, um, when your lungs and other body systems begin to shut down, um, it, it's not going to be a comfortable thing. Um, and I do think um, the isolation of being a COVID patient um, is really remarkable. Um, and I imagine um, that much more frightening for them um, in, in going um, into the hospital and then, you know, being cared for by people wearing masks and gowns and, and really just not even being able to see the humanity of um, those who are caring for you. Um, 
yeah, it's it's profoundly unnatural um, for folks to be um, so alone as they pass. Um, and there is a lot that can be done. Um, you know, it's usually not a sudden thing because mm. we do have enough technology to keep people's systems running artificially for a good long while. Um, but inevitably there is a time that our technology, uh, can't continue, um, what the body needs. Uh, yeah. So mm. it's, it's certainly, it's, it's, uh, heavy feeling um and it's an isolating experience i'm sure for those who are ill um just as it's isolating for their loved ones and for us who stand kind of in the middle trying to bridge that gap yeah 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 well you know that's a sobering harrowing difficult thing to listen to and to imagine. Um, and maybe there are some folks listening now to this podcast who have been there themselves or have a loved one who has been or has uh, passed in that setting. And, you know, I want to give everybody the space and time and moment they need. Uh, to to feel that and and um, process that. So, but I do want to take you uh, to almost the opposite place, which is for many Christians. You know, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, the sponsor of this podcast. Uh, occupies a kind of rare zone between two almost polar opposite ends of the Christian uh, community in the United States. And we have folks around the world as well, but mostly here in the U.S., or at least in North America, U.S. and Canada. And some of our friends of the Institute uh, would identify as very conservative uh traditionalist, maybe fundamentalist Christians. On the other end are a whole lot of folks uh, who would identify as liberal or progressive or mainline or something else. And then we've got folks who kind of float in the middle, a little bit this direction, a little bit that direction. So we really have the full spectrum. And we try to honor everyone and we try to listen uh deeply to everybody and how they see things. But there are a lot of folks, mostly on the conservative traditionalist side of uh, the marker, who will tell me they don't believe COVID really even exists, uh, that it's an exaggeration maybe of a kind of flu strain, or it's uh, an invention of the Chinese or another, um, you know, uh, 
somebody who doesn't have the best interests of America in, in uh, an antagonist of some kind, uh, you know, uh, and others who will say it's a complete fiction. It doesn't even exist. Um, that, you know, this is nothing but the flu and that much is being made of it for political reasons. So the, the first thing before I, I kind of go uh, deeply into that, Chrissy, I want to ask you, first of all, do you work for Joe Biden? No, absolutely oh. not. <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure that's clear. I'd be making a lot more money, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you an official in the Democratic Party? No, sir. <laughs> okay, okay, so you aren't that. Um, are you working for the Chinese? No. Okay, great. Phew. Uh, all right. So having said all that, <laughs> um, I think you're a fairly objective uh, commentator here. Hmm. So if you were sitting with somebody, and maybe you have, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have folks in your own circle who say these things, but somebody's sitting there and they say to you, this is all cooked up for political reasons. There's nothing real about it. It's terribly exaggerated. And we really don't have anything to worry about. Can I ask you how you would advise such a person? How you might, I mean, I know you're, you're a very congenial, affable, likable personality. So I know you're not going to be ugly about it. So how would you, what might you say to somebody uh, who, who, who would proffer such a thing? Yeah. I, I used to come home from my shifts in the COVID ICU and tell my husband, uh, I really wish it wasn't against HIPAA laws to wear a GoPro to work. <laughs> mm. Um, because I have met people along the way um, who feel the things that you've mentioned, that it's grossly overblown or um, not at all uh, an issue. And I can say with 100% certainty that the reports of COVID deaths and the tragicness of this pandemic are a hundred percent real. Um, I have seen people dying from it for the greater part of the last two years. Um, it has taken an extraordinary toll on my emotional and mental health to do so. Um, and when I hear people saying it's not real or I don't care or any number of other sort of flippant things in response, um, it's infuriating, it's disheartening, and it really feels invalidating as someone who has risked their own well-being to care for those who um, have this heartbreaking illness. Um, so it is a big deal. <laughs> um, people are still 
dying every day from it. Um, and I think we are living in a space where um, it's a little too easy for folks to separate themselves um, from the reality of these sufferings. Um, I often would say I, I wish that these limited visitor policies weren't in place because I want people to see what's happening behind these closed doors, um, to take it seriously. And yet I understand the, the need for them as well in terms of keeping risks lower for, for others. Um, so mm. yeah, <laughs> we mm. don't live in a vacuum either. Um, and while you may, choose to believe one thing um, and live a particular way, it, it's going to affect others um, like myself or like my immunocompromised mother. Um, everyone has a, a role to play in, in this pandemic. I just want to remind folks who are uh, listening and that uh well uh, chrissy i'll just ask you to clarify sure. would you would you describe yourself as a born again christian absolutely yeah and 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 if i said you're a bible believing christian would that describe you for sure yeah and you told us you grew up in an evangelical home what you didn't tell us is the school that you uh, the the university you went to uh, was it a christian university did you say yeah both times um both my nursing degree and my first bachelor's degree were from christian universities okay so raised in a christian home personal testimony of faith in christ mm -hmm. educated in christian schools served on the mission field mm -hmm. uh Today, you keep company in an evangelical uh, family of believers. Uh, I know that because I worship in the same place with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we just heard, folks, was the testimony of a Christian sister who loves the Lord and loves the people whom God has given to her to care for. And that's who you just heard from. You didn't hear from a political party operative. You didn't hear from somebody who works for the media headquartered uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York. You heard from a Christian sister who loves the Lord and loves people and serves them. So that, that that's important, I think, um, mm -hmm. for us to say. Um, and that leads me to the next question, because now I'll fuse that identity that you have with your professional identity as a nurse as uh you know experienced in the icu with covid patients and we get into a similar space with folks who say i don't need to get vaccinated against covid 19 for a number of reasons one is my natural immunity if i get the disease is stronger than the vaccine and more effective 
the vaccine is dangerous and untested and might hurt me or kill me. Um, I, I have a few colleagues who are convinced that it's an instrument of the Antichrist and there's actually a chip uh, that floats in the liquid of the vaccine. And if you're injected with it, that uh, piece of technology will be embedded in your body and that will allow the Antichrist to monitor and control you. So there's a lot going on out there about vaccines. From your experience as a medical professional who has cared for COVID patients in the most extreme of circumstances, including right up and into their deaths, how might you advise your Christian brothers and sisters on the question of vaccines? American evangelicals are some of the most reluctant and resistant when it comes to being vaccinated. What would you give them any counsel at all? Sure. Um, I am vaccinated. I was one of the early adopters of the vaccine because of my profession and the location I was working in. Um, I happily and tearily got that first vaccine um, and I'm now boosted, so to speak. Um, and from the beginning, um, the politicization of the vaccine and these different beliefs um, are things that have been proven wrong in my readings and uh, scientific study over and over again. Um, there's plenty of misinformation out there, and yet there's also plenty of quality, uh, fact-based information that shows that the best possible way to combat this pandemic and return to some semblance of normalcy is through vaccination. Um, you know, from the beginning of things, um, I sort of bluntly felt and said <laughs> that the chance of you dying from the vaccine itself is basically zero. <laughs> um, and the numbers continue to prove that that is the case. Um, but the chances of you dying from COVID are extremely high. Um, if you were to get it. And I do just believe that um, the, the rugged individualism of American thought is getting in the way of a reality where we can move past this continual slog of a new wave or a new variant. Um, you know, we aren't taking a bigger picture into account, thinking about um, the fact that we live in um, a global society, we live in spaces where we rub shoulders with other people um, and 
our decision for our bodies affects other people. Um, and I personally feel if, if you are a Bible believing Christian who self describes as pro life, then you need to be pro life across the entirety of the lifespan of all individuals. And that includes those who you're living next to that are at high risk of getting COVID and dying from it. Um, and part of our duty in loving our neighbor and living in community is choosing to take part in safety practices that will uh, protect them as well as yourself. Um, even if it's entirely <laughs> selfish, um, you know, get vaccinated for yourself, but um, know that choosing not to get vaccinated, um, you're leaving a wake in your path that you probably aren't seeing, but I, as the uh, nurse caring for COVID patients, I'm seeing that wake and it's devastating to a lot of people. Wow, that's good counsel. And you're much better to preach it than I am because <laughs> I'm the amateur here. Uh, the uninitiated, you are fully both, I mean, you're spiritually, uh, experientially, professionally trained uh, and knowledgeable of this subject. So thank you for giving us that good counsel, uh, that, that good advice. And I want to say uh, to everybody, you know, who's listening here, maybe you're already convinced of all this. Maybe you're double and even triple vaccinated with the booster. Maybe this isn't an issue, but there are probably people within your universe for which it is. Mm. And you can help them by sharing this podcast with them. And I'm going to ask you to be a little bold just to muster a, a little courage yourself. And I, it's, I know it's hard because I experience it myself with my own friends and colleagues, but maybe asking, you know, this is what I like to say. Um, here's something for you to listen to. You may hate it. It may get you very angry. And if it does, I would love to hear why. And 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 I I'd like to understand that. Give them permission to be angry about it. Let them be angry. Uh, let them uh, react the way they want to react to it. But challenge them to listen to it and process it. Because this is, you know, it's become a hackneyed phrase now, Chrissy, to describe you know, people like you as frontline workers that's now entered the popular lexicon and it sounds a little bit like a bumper sticker slogan, but, <laughs> but if you think about what it means, I mean, you're really on the front lines. You have seen this and touched it and probably even smelled it in a way none of us will. Mm. Uh, and and I want to thank you for what you have done for others, but particularly what you've done for us. And you've given us very good counsel. You said, 
get vaccinated for yourself. Well, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's part of the command. So take one or the other at first, get vaccinated for your neighbor in the first instance or for yourself in the first instance, but eventually link them both together because they're both linked to love of God. Hmm. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the equation. So who can argue with that? And and Chrissy, thank you for giving us that good. I'm going to add a layer to your calling if I can take the liberty and say that's good pastoral counsel. Thank you uh, for everybody who will benefit from it. And by the way, I should have rung the bell when you were talking about our rugged American individualism. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote his first dissertation, his seminal work. Uh, I think everybody on this podcast knows by now, you really want to understand Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you must read his first dissertation, Sanctorum Communio, the, the Holy Communion, not what we think of as happening with bread and wine, but the communion of God's saints, the people of God together as a big family and humanity as the family of the creator, uh, the crown of God's creation, all of us together, we, we are in this thing together. We are mm -hmm. in this pandemic together. It's not just me and the virus. It's all of us and the virus. So Chrissy, I can't thank you enough. I this asked a lot of you, this conversation. I hope and pray uh, that you can find peace in its aftermath and <laughs> regulation and all that stuff. <laughs> I'm, can you tell I'm married to a psychotherapist? So I'm always, you know, I, love I'm, it. I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta do right here by folks uh, who take a risk and you have, and I thank you for it. It's a gift to all of us. And I'm hoping a lot of folks will listen and uh, I'll be seeing you at church. And uh, wishing you and uh, and JM and Winston uh, <laughs> a very uh, blessed Christ Mass, uh, and I hope it's not the last time we get to talk. And and let me remind our podcast family: look for uh, Chrissy's testimony that will be published. We'll put a link right in the text surrounding this uh, audio recording. Chrissy, thank you so very, very much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. <laughs> God bless.